Father, we are humbled and excited and gracious to be able to come before your throne this morning. Father, we recognize that you are the one true God, the creator and owner of all things. And Father, we also recognize that you are the giver of good gifts, that all good things are from you. And Father, we come together as a church thanking you for the greatest gift of all, and that was the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, who willingly uh, took the burden and the payment of our sin upon himself, that we may be a people who are forgiven, that we are a people who have been reconciled with you, that we are a people who have been truly set free from the bondage of sin. And, Father, that we are a people who have a joy that is unspeakable, that only comes from you. And, Father, that we are a people who are unified and are truly a people who are blessed beyond measure. Father, we thank you that we can come into your house today and that we can open your word and that your word is truth and that your word is powerful. And, Father, we thank you that uh, for your faithful servant, uh, Pastor Frank, who will be opening your word and, and sharing your word and, and speaking your word and that your word will go out and it will go out in power. And, Father, I know that As we are gathered in your house today, there are many people here who come with burdens, those who have been afflicted with uh, uh, suffering and pain and unforeseen circumstances this past week. That, Father, they come here with a, a heavy heart that is burdened by broken relations, burdened by financial problems, burdened by health issues. Father, we thank you that they are here today. We thank you that they chose to be here today, to hear your word, to be among those who love them and care for them, and that, Father, that they are seeking your guidance and your strength and your wisdom in their circumstances. And, Father, we thank you that you are a God of reconciliation. And that, Father, that you, your heart is to be reconciled with your people. And, Father, I just pray for each one of these individuals who, are, who, have, who have come today with these burdens, that, Lord, they will turn to you. That, Father, that they, can see, that they will see that they cannot resolve it under their own strength and power, but that they have come to you and turned to you in faith and in trust. That, Lord, that you can guide them through whatever valley they are going through. And, Father, I especially pray for those here who do not know you. Father, I thank you that they are here to be able to hear your word. And that, Father, that your word will again go out in power today. And that your word will bring them from the darkness into the light. That your spirit will do that work that only he can do. And that is revealing the truth of who you are and your son, Jesus Christ, and what they have done for for them. Father, today... Do that work that only you can do. 
Um, Father, because we know that today is the day of salvation. And Lord, we will give you the praise and honor and glory for that. And Father, again, as we go out this week, Father, just guide our steps, guide our hearts, guide our thoughts. And Lord, just empower us to be light in this darkness around us. Father, help us to see the opportunities you give us each and every day to be a good sojourner and um, just a good person who will share the good news of the gospel with those that you bring in our path. Father, again, thank you for who you are. And, Lord, may everything we say and do during this time together, Lord, may bring praise, honor, and glory to your name. For we ask this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I failed to make one announcement earlier. They, um, it was up here, not down there. And that is, you know, Operation Christmas Child's coming up in a few weeks. And if you need boxes and information, they will be out in the Welcome Center after the service. So pick that up. That's a wonderfully important ministry, and we encourage you to pick up your boxes on the way out today. Fanny Crosby was a blind hymn writer. She was blinded um, very early in life due to an accident. And um, she lived most of the 19th century and through the 20th century. She died in 1915. I think she was born in the 1820s, so she lived a long time. as a blind lady. She knew the Lord. Uh, she was a hymn writer. Like I said, she wrote about 8,000 hymns. Publishers didn't want to put all her hymns in their hymn books, even though they were so good, because they would be all Fanny, you know, they would be like the Fanny Crosby hymn book. And so she had 98 pseudonyms that she wrote hymns by, um, so that they would get put in. Uh, hymn books still. Um, when she, I think when she was 13 years old, she wrote this. <clears throat> oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I'm resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Isn't that wonderful? And besides all those hymns, she wrote a bunch of uh, secular poems and things like that. She was active politically. One, and since we have an election coming up, I thought I'd share this. After one election that didn't go her way, she wrote, The election has passed, and I am pierced at last. The locos have won the day. <laughs> Fanny Crosby. I'd like to have known her. Um, she was an abolitionist, um, got real excited about that new Republican, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, and um, she, uh, she was quite a lady, but she knew Jesus Christ. She wrote, To God be the glory, great things he has done. She wrote, All the way my Savior leaves me. What, there's 17, in the Baptist hymnal that we used to sing out of, Um, There's 17 of her hymns in here. 
All the way my Savior leaves me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercies? Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Praise him, praise him, Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And many of you that grew up in church singing out of hymn books, you you know these. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. She wrote, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Rescue the perishing. And then she wrote this too. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Fanny Crosby has proved that you can't be physically blind and spiritually have your sight. But in our text that we've been going through the last month in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, we see a wonderful picture of how uh, being given physical sight is a display of what it means to receive spiritual sight. And so we take that up today. It is a wonderful picture, and we get to the most frenetic part of this chapter here in, in our last message on John chapter 9, the miracle of the healing of the blind man. And I remind you again that the miracles in, 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 in John's gospel are here because of the spiritual lessons. There are only seven miracles John records. This is the sixth one. That we're looking at now. John tells us why he chose these things, why he wrote these things down in chapter 20, verse 31. And you should have this from memory by now. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so in John's mind, these particular uh, These particular miracles are significant in his telling the story. Precisely because they teach spiritual truths. And my hope and prayer is by through our preaching this gospel of John that you, those of you who don't believe, may come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's why John wrote it. That you may believe. That's why we preach it. So here's the story up to this point. Chapter 9, the beginning, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. That's Jesus. Jesus comes up. He's walking by. He sees a blind man. Um, he, uh, Because he's blind, he's reduced to being a beggar as well. Um, and, and he's hanging out with other beggars because the beggars would hang out where the people would come. In the temple courts and different places where there would be crowds of 
people. And he sits there and he's begging with the others. And there are other people. And for some reason, Jesus walks by and chooses him. It's the first spiritual point in this lesson. And Jesus puts mud on his eyes and he sends him to the pool to wash the mud off. And all of a sudden he can see. But you see, Jesus is the creator. He can make sightless eyes and he can make eyes that see just as well. That's what Jesus does. He's the creator. And so here he makes new eyes because he had originally in the man's mother's womb created sightless eyes. Why would he do that? Why would he create sightless eyes? So that Frank Cohn in 2014, 2,000 years later, can proclaim this story. That's why Jesus, the creator, created sightless eyes in this man's mother's womb. And so many people want to say there's not a plan. John 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he creates eyes for this man. He can see. And Jesus, in this chapter, in the chapter before, declared himself to be the light of the world. And then there's a series of encounters. First, he encounters his neighbors. Uh, They're trying to figure out what happened to him. Some of them observed it. Some of them probably didn't. How this man who they knew that was blind, he can now see. So he goes through this interrogation with the neighbors. And the neighbors are divided over what the situation really is. There's a little conflict between the neighbors. They're confused. And he really can't answer what happened to him because he hasn't seen the person who did it. He knows his name is Jesus. That's really all he knows. And so then the neighbors, they can't figure it out. So they take him to the Pharisees. They're supposed to have all the answers. That's why you come to me, right? Yeah. Um, The Pharisees are supposed to have all the answers. They're supposed to provide some sort of spiritual explanation for why this takes place. Why this has been done to this man. Maybe they know. Certainly the blind man knew that this had never been done in the history of the world before. That a blind man was made to see. And so the Pharisees interrogate him. Now, we we need to understand that from previous chapters, we know that the Pharisees already have a verdict in mind before they even do the interrogation, believe Jesus is demon-possessed. But even the Pharisees are at odds with each other, can't really try to figure it out or come up with an answer, can't come up with any resolution. And and so then the, the Pharisees decide to approach the man's parents. And the man's parents, they pretty much just throw him under the bus. Um, they don't have, they're not much help. And because if they were to take Jesus aside, they knew that they were going to be excommunicated from the synagogue and they didn't want that to happen. So they're rather vague in their answers. 
And really, they just say, we, we can't answer your question, so just go to him. He's of age. Ask him the question. So that's where we find ourselves this morning. Verse 24. There's another interrogation. Encounter with the Pharisees number two. I'm sure he's excited. Well, we'll see how excited he is. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's funny that we see that uh, in, in this particular case, and often is the case, that the poor are much wiser than the rich. Despite his physical and his financial condition, he saw things that the proud religious rulers could not see and would not see. He saw clearly in this miracle that this is proof of God's work. Verse 24, so the second time um, they ask him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. He's talking about Jesus. Verse 33 If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, the healed man says. From the moment of his cure, his view, both both physical and spiritual, was completely changed. He had eyes. He had eyes now. And the Pharisees were blind. The same thing happened to other places in the Scripture. You remember back in Exodus, if you know that story? Remember that Pharaoh's servants during the plays would say, This surely is the finger of God. And Pharaoh was still rebellious because his heart was hardened. The story of Naaman that I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, his servants, Elisha says, go, you know, go wash. You want to be cured of the leprosy? Go wash seven times in the river. And, and, um, and Naaman run, goes off in some rage over being to, to, told by the, Elisha, by the prophet, to go wash seven times. Why would he send a messenger? Why didn't he just come tell me himself? I'm Naaman. But the servants say, just do what he says. He knows what he's doing. So you see, the lowly ones are much wiser in many, many cases than the powerful ones. And Scripture is clear that the powerful and the wealthy, the great people of the world, are often the last ones to learn the spiritual lessons. Their possessions and their position often blind the eyes of their understanding. Paul was talking to Christians when he said, 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But you know Jesus. Those given power and riches by the world are the last to see. Mark 10:23 Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God And 
believe me, every person in this room, I don't know how poor you think you are compared to the rest of the world, we're all wealthy. This man doesn't know everything about Jesus, but he does know that Jesus touched his life. He said, though I was blind, now I see. A personal testimony. What Jesus did to me. It's an irrefutable argument. Why it's important. It's not everything in your witnessing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The gospel is necessary in your witnessing. But what Jesus has done for you is equally necessary. Leon Morris says they take their stand on their preconceived ideas. Talking about the Pharisees. He, the blind man, on the simple facts that he knows. And this is a wonderful description of uh, the, the Spirit's work of regeneration in our lives. We've already seen this in this gospel. Nobody can really, nobody has any technical terms for how the wind works when it blows out there with such power. And yet we see the results. He says in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so this man saying, you know, I'm, I don't know. I don't really know how this happened to me. I just know once I was blind, now I see. That's the result. Relying on what we experience personally in our case with Christ. It's about the only way to deal with people who are so prejudiced. Now he can argue from an experience he had, a verifiable experience. You see, one of the marks of, uh, of Christianity, evangelical Christianity, is the vital place that our personal experience with Jesus plays when combined with Bible truth. You know those people are part of the formal, creedal-type religions that might be absolutely correct in their, uh, in, in their doctrine, but void of the life of God in their worship, in their fellowship, in their life. But truth results in freedom. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That Bible truth results in freedom. And a free believer is inclined not to remain silent with regard to their experience with Jesus Christ. So this healed man is is controlled by the force of truth in his life. He's free. And he has to testify to the undeniable reality of what Jesus has done to him. And it's so simple. I was blind. I see now. Can't deny it. He can't be shut up either. He must declare what Christ has done for him. Now, before you think I'm going off the deep end, experience on its own is not conclusive. 
especially in our experience-saturated society. Go to the self-help section of Barnes & Noble and look at how many books deal with your feelings. I started to bring a list of titles, but we don't have time. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, especially when the experience is verifiable. Even today, we're bound to accept the testimony of experience only when it's going to be validated by the Word of God. I told you, I shared my testimony a couple of weeks ago, how between my junior year and senior year of high school, God did something to me during that summer. And all of a sudden, I was a different person when I came back to school for my senior year. It was verifiable. God had done something in Frank Cone back a long time ago. So it's a balance between that experience and scripture that's required as long as that experience results from scriptural truth it's what any christian would declare really in so many words jc ryle paraphrased it or wrote it out best i was dark and now i have light I was afraid of God and now I love Him. I was fond of sin and now I hate it. I was blind and now I see. The hungry man eats and feels refreshed. The thirsty man drinks and feels refreshed. Surely the man who has within him the grace of God ought to be able to say, I feel its power. John Newton said the same thing in his testimony in that Great hymn we're going to sing at the end of this service. I once was blind, but now I see. He saw it. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them. I love this guy. The more I study this chapter, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. That really ticked them off. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper for God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man were not from God. He could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they threw him out. They cast him out. This encounter with the Pharisees, they weren't getting anywhere, so we see how cruel and unjust lost people, how cruel and unjust pagans can be with those that they disagree with. Now, we Christians have a poor track record along those lines, too. 
That's not the case here. And as my dad would say to me years ago, this man's patience was wearing thin. Repeated questions, their effort to make him disbelieve. He was reaching the end of his rope, so to speak. And he seemed to say, I've told you this story over and over again. He has told them the story. They have asked him this question before. And I don't have anything to add to it. Because when I told you, apparently you weren't listening. Now here, these are the Pharisees standing here interrogating this poor blind beggar. He's not blind anymore. Why do you want to hear it a second time? And then sarcasm at its finest. Do you want to become his disciple? It's not what he said. He said, do you also want to become his disciple? That word is there, kai, K-A-I, in the Greek. Do you also? He's finally declaring he's a disciple. Now, we know from previous chapters that disciples fell away and didn't ultimately follow Jesus Christ. So this is on some level he's a disciple. One might almost think from your repeated anxious questions that you yourselves want to be Christ's disciple. And that sarcasm makes it even worse for him. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. It begins with a simple, unanswerable argument. He opened my eyes. That pretty much silenced those that were interrogating. This is amazing. Unmistakable fact that this person has opened my eyes. He has, in short, worked an incredible miracle in me. And yet, in the face of this miracle, you see the miracle. You say that you don't know where he's from. You say you don't know who gave him this power to do this. Learned men, rulers, and teachers... You might have been expected to know where he comes from. It's as if he tells the Pharisees, your unbelief and ignorance in the face of the evidence is much more of a miracle than what he did to me. And so he said, we know that God does not listen to sinners. It's interesting about this man. Um, that God doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked people. We see that throughout Scripture. Isaiah 1, Psalm 66. And it's not that God just shuts his ears to the prayers of people. That God is unwilling to hear the prayers of people because we know that God hears prayers of repentance from sinful, wicked people. He's a blind, poor beggar, but he knows things. He he knows some Jewish doctrine. We don't know how much. He knows the Word a little bit. How he knows, we're not sure, but he knows that Scripture affirms that God 
doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. He knows that someone who would do the will of God would be of God. He also knows, we'll see in a minute, I read it a, a minute ago, no one in history has been healed like this. He knows he's the first. He's no theologian. But he gives a well-reasoned argument according to the Scriptures, and it falls on deaf ears. God will not hear unrepentant sinners. At this point, At this point in his life, he probably doesn't see that Jesus is nothing but just a very, very, very good man still, whose prayers God would hear. And he declares himself a disciple at this point, but we've already seen in other places where that doesn't always hold for time. And we see he he testifies nobody in the world has ever been healed in such a way. This is really the conclusion of his argument. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It's the end of his argument. But this man has done this work, so he must be sent from God. It's the other side of the argument. If he were not from God, he couldn't do anything miraculous. Certainly, nothing as miraculous as this, something that has never been done before. Reminds us of Nicodemus when he came to the Lord by night in chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Augustine said, this was frankly, firmly, and truly spoken. These things were done by the Lord. How should they be done by any but God? And then we notice the persecution that takes place as a result of him. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? You're trying to teach us? We all went to seminary. Can't teach us anything. And they cast him out. Notice how persecution and excommunication are common weapons of the ecclesiastical elite. When they can't answer arguments, and they try to silence and intimidate people. Calvin said about this, It is certain that those who are not subject to Christ are deprived of the lawful power of excommunicating. Meaning that those who haven't submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ are disqualified from being able to excommunicate somebody. Nor ought we to dread being excluded from their assembly, since Christ, our life and salvation, was banished from them. 
Why should we worry about being excluded from their assembly since they excluded Christ? Happened to Martin Luther. That's why we're here today. Protestants. And the Pharisees couldn't frighten the blind beggar who had been healed. Then they expelled him, excommunicated him. Now, that meant more than you might think. It's not that they just kicked him out of the Jewish church. They shamed him. They treated him as if he was a tax collector. Excuse me if you are. Pretty bad back in those days. It was hurtful. It was painful to be excluded from all of all of life in Jerusalem was centered on religion, and so to be excommunicated from that was pretty much sending you out, cut him off from any outward privileges he may have, experience scorn and suspicion among all the true Israelites. But it couldn't hurt his soul. Excommunication, imprisonment, persecution are favorite weapons of the spiritual elite. Think about those reformers burned at the stake. A couple months ago, I stood in the square in Florence, Italy, where Savonarola was burned at the stake, one of the earliest reformers, long before Martin Luther. Actually, on the anniversary of that time. It's happened in our nation. Next week, I'll be in Kittery, Maine. Don't play hooky. I'll be at First Baptist Church, Kittery, Maine, next Sunday. In 1682, in that same church, a man by the name of William Screven gathered some of his people together because there was so much persecution for the Baptist in Maine because we didn't do baptism right. They came down to Charleston, South Carolina and started First Baptist Church, Charleston. Sorry, I can't take you with me. All because of persecution. Unable to answer the arguments, powerful religious people have frequently resorted to violence and injustice. John Calvin said, if he would have been allowed to stay in the synagogue, he would have eventually become estranged from Christ. Hopeful. It's important that the true believer have some peace with the thought that there is a true church by which the true believer can never be cast out. Hallelujah. And friends, it's coming, not just from the church. The visible church may not always be in the minority, but the true church is in the minority. 
And we must be prepared that hard times are coming for those who stand for the true gospel. The institutional church will attack us on our biblical stance on a host of topics. Your family will. A firm biblical stance in today's culture will become more and more challenging for every single one of us. One example is that now your elders are considering how to word a statement for our revised statement of faith, which clearly will define what a man is and what a woman is. Imagine that we have to define what a man is and what a woman is to protect ourselves from the world. Who would have thunk? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. This guy has been blind his whole life, and nobody has ever said to him the word seen. (laughs) Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said to him, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That word for worship means he bowed down on his face. Now we're moving from physical blindness to spiritual blindness, or physical sight to spiritual sight. This is where we get that amazing story that goes throughout this chapter. Throughout the entire Bible, really, blindness is used symbolically to represent all of fallen mankind. Throughout Scripture, blindness is used to represent our fallenness. The inability to comprehend who God is and understand divine truth. And no sooner was he kicked out of the Jewish church than Jesus approaches him. He finds him. He comes to him. He chooses him. And he has some amazing words for him. And they're comforting words. And they're powerful words. He knew how difficult it would be to experience excommunication. He knew that for an Israelite, life would be most challenging. So he came with words, the words of God himself. Kind words, loving words. He reveals himself more fully to to this man. Who is the Son of Man? And he simply says, you've seen him. And it's he who is speaking to you. We have here one among 
many beautiful illustrations of the mind of Jesus Christ. That he sees everything his people goes through. What his people go through for his sake. And he feels for them from the highest person to the lowest person. And he keeps account of all your losses. And he keeps account of all your crosses. And he keeps account of all your persecutions and everything you go through. You say, how do I know that? Psalm 56, verse 8. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He knows how to come to us, particularly in our time of need. And he speaks peaceful words to us. And we experience hatred on all sides. The time when people forsake us is the very time that Christ draws near. Fanny Crosby wrote that hymn, Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. And he draws to us and he says to us in Isaiah 41:10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says, I believe. I believe. He worshipped him. Yeah, you see where we have gone. First, in verse 11, we see he's a man called Jesus. It's as far as this guy's gotten. And then in verse 17, he calls him a prophet. And then in verse 33, he's a man from God. And in verse 38, the Son of God, worthy of worship and praise. See how God has worked in his life. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these words and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Now that you think you know it all, your guilt remains. Oh, how dangerous knowledge can be if we don't make good use of it. The rulers of the Jews are fully convinced that they knew all religious truth. In fact, they knew so much religious truth beyond the Hebrew Bible, they made up more. In fact, they made up the one that we saw earlier in the chapter where the parents feared they would be excommunicated. That's just a little rule they just made up since Jesus showed up. If you become a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be excommunicated from the synagogue. And they made up many, many, many more. If you were blind, Jesus said, you would have no guilt. But now I say, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They had doctrine without love. We talked about that for a few moments Wednesday night. 
Sadly, I see that in the church today. Oh, we like to get our doctrine right, don't we? But with love, without love, we're just, you're just a nasty-sounding gong and a clanging cymbal, Paul would say. Knowledge is a great blessing. The man who can't read Scripture will easily be led away by a false teacher. So knowledge is important. But that said, when knowledge only sticks in our heads, has no influence over our heart and our life, it can be dangerous. Far more hope about the person who says, I'm a poor blind sinner and want God to teach me than about the one who says, I know it, I know it, I know it, I'm not ignorant. They're also saying at the same time, I'm not teachable. I'm not teachable. I don't need Sunday school. I don't need Wednesday State study. I know more than all of you. I don't need to read books. I don't need to learn. I already know it all. And hang on to that sin. The sin of that person remains, Jesus says. And it may not always lead to spiritual death, but in this case it did. It's interesting. The Pharisees judged falsely and cast out the healed beggar. Jesus judged perfectly and cast out the Pharisees. We must use whatever doctrinal knowledge we have and always ask God for more. But we must... Never forget that the devil himself is a creature of enormous head knowledge. Satan knows more doctrine than you will ever know. And not better for it. And we must constantly pray as David did in Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Let me close with this. There are people. There are people who have eyes but are blind. See that with the Pharisees. We see it today. Isaiah 43a says, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. And there are people who have eyes and they see, but they are foolish and senseless. Jeremiah 5, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes, but see not. Even the leaders of Israel, the watchmen themselves in Isaiah 56, his watchmen are blind. Imagine the the guys that are guarding the gates, the watchmen are blind. A lot of use they are. They're all without knowledge. Jesus called these Pharisees blind guides. He tells... And Paul giving his testimony in Acts 26, 
He tells Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Jesus said that to Paul as he gives his testimony on the Damascus Road where he was blinded physically and spiritually and then God gave him his sight back physically and spiritually. And then Paul says that sinners in Ephesians 4 are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Is that you? Are you darkened in your understanding? Do you need sight? Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. And in the Revelation, we see the description of the world of sinners where you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind. Blindness in this chapter and throughout Scripture is a picture of eternal death, spiritual death, spiritual blindness, darkness. Augustine said, There are many who, according to common usage, are called good people, good men, good women, harmless, honoring their parents, not committing adultery, doing no murder, not stealing, not bearing false witness, and in a sort, observing the other duties commanded in the law, and yet are not Christians. These commonly give themselves airs, like the Pharisees here saying, are we blind also? That may be true in your case. But Scripture declares over and over and over there is hope for you. Matthew 4. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. There is hope for you. Peter describes that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, what? Out of darkness into his marvelous light. John 8, just a chapter before, on the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow him today. You know you're living in darkness. Follow him today. And soon we'll see him declare in chapter 12, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So in leaving this chapter, it's worth remembering that this is one of the Lord's miracles about which the commentators actually agree can be spiritualized. There is some spiritual significance here. Many of us typically will try to over-spiritualize some passages of Scripture, but it's clear here that the healing of the blind man is a perfect picture of the light that God brings into somebody's spiritual life. 
the light that God brings into a sinner's soul. The healing of this man throughout this entire chapter from verse 1 through verse 41 is a true picture of conversion. Even in order. This entire chapter outlines how Jesus heals blind souls. First of all, we're all spiritually blind from birth. You were born blind. There is no light. You're born a depraved sinner. You cannot come to God. There is none righteous, no, not one. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. Number two, Jesus takes the initiative in healing us from blindness. It is His work and His work alone. Number three, Jesus does a work of creation in us, not reformation. He doesn't just make us good enough to be able to turn to Him. He, he just, he, we're not born with some little spark in us to where at some point when the age of accountability, whatever that means, we're able to say yes to Jesus Christ. No. He does a work of creation in us. He doesn't just reform us and make us better. And in this work, Jesus calls us to be obedient in what he commands Repenting of our sin. Turning to Him. It says that in Mark 1. Repent and believe. Number five. We become a mystery to our acquaintances. You remember when God changed your life? You might have become a mystery to your spouse. I know some of your testimonies. And I know that was true. Don't even seem like the same person. What got hold of you? Jesus got hold of me. Six, we display loyalty to Jesus when we're persecuted, proclaiming his work in our lives. And we pass from little knowledge to greater knowledge. Because of that, we bow down and worship him. Adore Him. You know, we don't ever know who this blind man is. We don't know his name. Because Jesus is the important one. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is content to remain anonymous. So that the Lord gets all the glory. He did it in this man's life. He can do it in yours. He's the light of the world. Let's pray. I'm going to sing a hymn in a moment. Which is a testimony of the hymn writer. encourage you during that time. If you want to talk to somebody more about what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ, our elders will be in the back. And during this song, just make your way back there. Talk to them. Pray with them.
If you have other needs or concerns, I encourage you to make your way back there as we sing Amazing Grace. Father, many of us have experienced that grace. You opened our eyes to the truth of your word and we sing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We prayed, show us Christ, and you did. And I don't know why you chose this poor blind beggar, Frank Cohn, on the side of the road one day, but you did. And I pray, Lord, that our, our lives, our church, might bring honor and glory to your name. We might proclaim this gospel and see you open the blind eyes to your glory and your glory alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.